Hello, and welcome to the Finch Podcast from the Finch Media Group. Today is January 28th, 2021. We're your hosts, Will and Alex, and we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. This was the most important election of our lifetimes, for some. In Oklahoma, only 50% of eligible voters turned out in November. Sure, the general election boasted record turnout, but that's not saying much in America. There are many reasons why those in the Panhandle State and across the nation did not turn out. The Junk Desk makes its debut. Then we turn our attention to computers, where unlike voter turnout, America is on the leaderboard for security breaches. American intelligence and corporations are attacked millions of times per year, but as the nation transitioned online, it just got worse. An interweb war explained in five minutes. But first, Lebanon, the Middle Eastern country torn between progress and corruption, literally shaken to its core in 2020. We look at religion and politics in Beirut. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Robin Kerner, live from CNN World News headquarters here in Atlanta. So we begin with this breaking news out of Beirut, Lebanon. Breaking news of a major explosion in the city of Beirut, Lebanon. Hundreds of thousands have been displaced from their homes and thousands more injured. It's not yet known what caused the explosion, but Lebanon's prime minister says his country is facing a catastrophe. Today, the country's debt is equivalent to roughly 170% of its GDP. The government is now making concerns sessions after days of protests. Could Lebanon become the new coronavirus hotspot? Many believe so. Max Weiss is an associate professor of history and Near Eastern studies at Princeton University. He's a leading researcher on the intellectual history of the Middle East, and he's written extensively about the interplay between culture, religion, and intellect in Lebanon and Syria. Having studied at Berkeley and Stanford and supported by Fulbright, Harvard, and Carnegie Grants, he's the author of In the Shadow of Sectarianism, Arabic Thought Beyond the Liberal Age, and a translator of the critically acclaimed book The Beekeeper, Rescuing the Stolen Women of Iraq. And now he joins us. Welcome to the show. Sure, it's good to be with you both. So we've definitely missed something. Can you elaborate on what you do a little bit further? I am a professor in the departments of history and Near Eastern Studies at Princeton, where I study and teach about the cultural, intellectual, and social history of the modern Middle East, with a specific focus on the lands of greater Syria, that is to say, the present-day countries of Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, Israel, although I teach courses that uh, concern the, the region more broadly, from North Africa to Iran, from Turkey to Saudi Arabia. My research has primarily been concerned uh, with the histories of uh, Lebanon and Syria in particular. Brilliant. Let's dive right in with some questions. At 11 a.m. on August 4th, 2020, a series of detonations occurred in the port of Beirut. The massive explosions killed over 200 people, displaced hundreds of thousands, and will cost billions of dollars. Uh, There's been a lot of finger pointing in the aftermath, and one word keeps cropping up about the unique structure of Lebanese life. Can you tell us about what sectarianism is and how it's been both constructive and destructive to the establishment of modern Lebanon? One of the defining features of the country of Lebanon, as travelers, observers, and historians have long pointed out, is its social, cultural, and religious diversity. And one element of this diversity is a diversity of Uh, religious culture and religious practice. As you are probably aware, the country of modern Lebanon has 18 recognized sectarian communities. Um, Five Islamic sects, Jewish community, and uh, upwards of uh, 12 Christian sects, The distinction between religion and sectarianism is a fuzzy one and a thorny one, and my usage already should indicate to you the the problem that um, scholars and observers of Lebanon confront in trying to understand this phenomenon. What I've tried to do in my own research, and so if, if we were to think about a more concrete way of defining sectarianism and not simply say that it is a an expression of religious difference, sectarianism in Lebanon has taken many different forms. 
as early as 1861 with the institution of a new administrative council under the auspices of the then ruling Ottoman Empire, reinforced in 1920 and 1926 with the arrival of French mandate colonial rule, and reiterated in the independent Lebanese national context in 1943 with the establishment of Lebanese independence, and then again in 1989 with the conclusion of the Ta'if agreement that ended the Lebanese Civil War of 1975 to 1989, sectarian rights and representation were enshrined in the political sphere in Lebanon, which means that Lebanese sectarian communities were officially recognized as legitimate political entities and not just religious entities. And this is understood by Lebanese citizens and by scholars and observers of Lebanon as political sectarianism. So political sectarianism in the Lebanese case is also describable as what I would call proportional confessional representation. This is an unwieldy term that refers to the assignment of positions of political power and authority and the allotment of sectarian seats in representative bodies according to a sectarian metric, that is to say, according to sectarian communal difference. Political sectarianism, however, is only one expression of sectarian difference in the Lebanese context. In my book on the history of law and religious practice in mandate era Lebanon, I argued that we can open up the conversation by thinking about sectarianism, not only in political terms, but also in what I called institutional and thirdly, affective terms. Institutional sectarianism would be the ensemble of legal, educational, media, and other kinds of civic public life within which sectarianism would be the governing principle. So, for example, in the sphere of personal status, otherwise known as family law, each sectarian community in Lebanon is recognized as the ultimate arbiter of matters to do with marriage, divorce, inheritance, some property matters. Similarly, in terms of educational institutions, parochial schools or sectarian schools have a wide latitude for administering the conduct of those spheres. So this, although it has a very um, clear relationship with the political establishment, institutional sectarianism, in my conception of the phenomenon, is somewhat distinct and brings matters a bit more into the social realm. Third and finally, what I describe as affective sectarianism has something a bit more to do with a kind of inchoate sense of belonging to a sectarian community, what anthropologists and cultural historians would describe as a kind of affective connection to the idea or the spirit of being, say, a Maronite Christian, being a Sunni Muslim, being a Shiite Muslim. And it is this somehow more intangible conception of sectarian belonging that is one of the, to, to now come back to the term that you used, often perceived by many as a positive manifestation of sectarianism. It is indeed an expression of some kind of cultural heritage and religious identity that many would like to see nurtured, sustained, and given some measure of recognition in Lebanese social and political life. What arises out of confessional representation is really interesting. By convention, the president of Lebanon must be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of the parliament a Shia Muslim. And you've described why that is the case and how it came to be, but do any complications come from the style of governance? Taking one step back, it's worth pointing out that historically speaking, the Maronite Catholic community enjoyed special privileges even prior to the establishment of the French mandate, the quasi-colonial system of administration under which Lebanon was governed from 1920, owing to a cultivated relationship between French 
commercial, but also political actors in the Eastern Mediterranean since as far back as the 16th century. So the Maronite community of Mount Lebanon and of Beirut arrogated to itself from a er very early point the right to speak in the name of what increasingly came to be understood as a Lebanese nation in the modern sense of nationalism. It was thanks to the preeminent place played by Maronite Christian religious, political, and economic leaders throughout the 19th and into the early 20th century that the Lebanese political sphere was dominated by in large measure, the Maronite Christian community, and for similar, albeit distinct reasons, the Sunni Muslim community of Mount Lebanon and Beirut also played an outsized role. And it was owing to this fact that when Lebanon achieved its independence from French mandate colonial rule in 1943, a gentleman's agreement, as historians often refer to it, was concluded, not in writing, but in an informal sense, between the leading figures within the Sunni Muslim and the Maronite Christian communities, men by the name of Riyadh al-Sulh and Bashar al-Khuri, respectively, um, a national pact, al-Mithaq al-Watani. The national pact was effectively recognition that the president of the independent Lebanese Republic would be a Maronite Catholic, and the prime minister would be a Sunni Muslim. Again, this was a matter of convention and never a matter of law. The convention was adapted several years later in 1947, when for the first time a Shiite Muslim was uh, recognized as speaker of the parliament. And from that point forward, it was taken as a matter of course that one aspect of Lebanese political sectarianism would be the appointment of a Maronite Catholic president, a Sunni Muslim prime minister, and a Shiite Muslim speaker of the parliament. Article 95 of the 1926 Lebanese constitution enshrined sectarianism for the first time in the modern period as a feature of the Lebanese political establishment. Recognition being that the Christian communities of Lebanon would enjoy greater representation than the Muslim communities. With a proportion of six Christian representatives of the parliament to every five Muslim representatives. This requires a detour into the history of demographics in the country to understand just how complicated and conflictual this facet of the Lebanese political system had become, but um, suffice it to say that uh, the most important institutionalization of sectarianism in a political sense in Lebanon was in a sense a fiction. It is not something, the appointments that I discussed of the three presidencies often referred to as a, a troika in Lebanese political discourse. This was never enshrined officially in law, but rather convention. France and Lebanon have, by way of the mandate system, had a close relationship for a while now. I don't know if this is owing to that exactly, but I've heard that Beirut, uh, the capital of Lebanon, is often referred to as the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, following what has happened recently, conversations have sprung up once more about how Beirut is an exception compared to other cities in the Middle East and North Africa. What made this city and Lebanon as a whole prosperous both economically and intellectually following the end of the French mandate rule? Yeah, there is a, a kind of nostalgic representation of pre-Civil War, that is to say pre-1975 Beirut as the Paris of the Middle East. And I think it's fair to say that this appellation has as much to do with the cultural life of the city as it does to do with any kind of economic uh, prosperity, as you, as you put it. The country, in terms of its economic history, has played the part of a service economy. Historians will refer to Lebanon during the pre-Civil War period as a merchant republic, as an entrepot, as a hub for travel, trade, 
and tourism. So the fact that Lebanon was, and to a large extent remains, a Francophone country with a large number, especially of Maronite Catholics who began migrating to France as far back as the 18th century, and then returning to Lebanon with the establishment of missionary schools in French, the, the cultural life of certain parts of Beirut have been extremely Francophilic. Now, the, the other side of the Paris of the Middle East metaphor that is relevant has to do with a historical phenomenon, which is, to my mind, a post-Civil War, and by that I mean during the Civil War and after, a construction of a pre-war Lebanon that was characterized by diversity and tolerance and freedom and consumerism and leisure. And this, to be sure, has been part of the history of the city, a city that fancies itself cosmopolitan and open and, as I mentioned, an entrepot and a crossroads port city. What that description, that nostalgic representation ignores is the long-standing forms of political, social, uh, political and social conflict that characterized the history of the country continuing throughout that period of supposed um, peace and amity and, um, and French-style leisure. Um, as far as the continuation of this, of this story, um, there is a complicated relationship between France, the French language, French imperial power, and um, the country of Lebanon on the whole, but especially certain sectors, French educated, Catholic in the main. So this is uh, a relationship that has historic roots, as I mentioned, going back to the 16th century between the Maronite Catholic community and the French. The appearance of Macron on the scene, though, the day that in the days following the blast on August 4th indicates the extent to which there is some kind of pride to be taken among French political leaders in hearkening back to their own, in some ways, whitewashed history of imperial engagement in the Middle East, in Africa, and elsewhere. On the other side of that, of course, we have seen uh, some expressions of welcome, support um, among the Lebanese population, looking now to France as an alternative to what is perceived by many to be an unworkable, unreformable, and corrupt political establishment. So there are, are historical echoes in terms of the history of imperialism and French colonial activity in Lebanon, in terms of the history of French cultural engagement with Lebanon and Lebanese embrace of French culture, and then the if you like, the consequences of Lebanese post-colonial and post-war political dysfunction in which France can stand as a kind of untarnished alternative to a seemingly decrepit and unfixable political system. I want to talk about the blast now and its implications on how we viewed the Middle East and Lebanon. Unfortunately, the explosion in the port of Beirut has only enforced the all-too-familiar stereotype that the Middle East is purely a zone of conflict and bloodshed and nothing else. You've pushed back hard against these views in your book, Arabic Thought Against the Authoritarian Age. Lebanon is socially, culturally, and religiously diverse, boasting some of the finest cultural and intellectual feats of mankind. So, how do we counter the narrative that the Middle East, and Lebanon in particular, are zones of ceaseless warfare, and that these explosions are not anomalies? Yeah, it's a tough issue, and I'll preface this response by saying that I am not myself a Lebanese citizen. I have lived in Lebanon for many years, and I try to 
get there at least once a year. I was there most recently in January, but I have not been there since the explosion at the port. And so I will defer entirely on the matter of describing and analyzing the consequences of the blast to my Lebanese friends and colleagues and send them uh, all of my support and solidarity. Now, fortunately, the Finch Media Group does have friends and colleagues in Lebanon. Following the explosion at the port of Beirut, we reached out to our collaborators at the Simply Youth Podcast, a Lebanese student-led organization dedicated to promoting the voices of Lebanon. Simply Youth has a special place in our heart. They started just a few months after we started the Finch Podcast, and throughout the past year we've worked on them uh, on our common mission of exposing new perspectives to widespread audiences. Uh, We had the solemn honor of speaking with them just a few days after the August 4th explosion. The three co-founders of the group, Lilia Chahin, Mahmoud Yamani, and Hadi Khalaf, were only a few blocks away when the blast occurred and sustained uh, several injuries. I want to say that if you're uncomfortable with hearing about the aftermath, we advise you to skip forward a few minutes, but I, I hope you'll stay and listen to this testimony. Here's Lilia first. I'm Lilia. I'm from Beirut, so where the explosion happened. And um, yeah, I live in um, downtown, which is seven minutes away from the port, so like two blocks away. And I was at home when it happened, and it was very scary. But um, hopefully where I live, it was still like as much as like it was very damaged. Yeah, and my school is also nearby. And I was actually, I have a blog, so I was I was writing when that happened. Uh, and I was sitting next to my window in my mom's room, thankfully, because um, in my room, the window completely like came out, like fell on the chair. We have been through like so much here in Lebanon, like with um, the economic crisis and the pandemic and um, pol- political issues. Like Lebanon has never been stable. But like this explosion was like on a whole whole new level. And like even when it was happening, because like two like two explosions, so second one. So the first one like made like an earthquake. So I just thought that it was an earthquake and I stayed stayed seated, like I didn't go anywhere. And then the second one happened and, and that's when I heard my mom screaming. So um yeah, and then we went to these stairs because obviously the elevator was broken. Um, it was all glass and like neighbors who heard themselves were down there and um yeah so it was very traumatic like i never expected or thought in a million years that i'd like have to go check running to see if like my family is okay and like call my friends to see if they're okay i mean they called me because i live closer than they do but still um and yeah it was it was very hard but i mean i'm hopeful because like what from what I've seen, like the Lebanese people have been like more united right now than they've ever been before. And like just seeing like all the people and especially like people our age, like on the streets cleaning and said like there is no government teams or anything like in the like on the streets, like they're all Lebanese people and just cleaning um, and helping like an old man go back up to his house to see his house that's damaged. So it's very, it's very sad and very heartbreaking, but very um, hopeful. And um, yeah, I like it, it's still very traumatic. Like I still can't believe what happened. And like when I sit back and think, like I, I don't remember like how, most of it. Like I barely remember anything because it was just I couldn't understand what's happening then, and I still kind of don't. Um, but yeah, I'm very hopeful that we'll come out stronger and that. And because like we hit the bottom, so there's no going down. So like we're only going to go back up, hopefully. Here's Mahmoud speaking to us from Sidon. It's not that close from Beirut. It's like 30 minutes away. And like I felt the explosion. I was working on my bed. And then like I felt the windows just open. And that was like this must be down the street or or something political uh, because, you know, there was a the international court decision coming in a few days. Then we came out and I, I was so surprised. Like I know actually many people who were injured, someone was killed. Uh, 
and we are, I called everybody I know in, in Beirut, but yeah, it's, it's still very hard to swallow, even though you don't necessarily live there, but I mean, it hit the whole country, not just Beirut, I guess. I want to get a sense of what people are feeling. Is it anger towards the government? Uh, this was a stockpile of highly explosive ammonium nitrate, which was confiscated a few years back and then just abandoned in the port. What are you, your families, your friends feeling? What's happening now? Uh, I would honestly classify like the situation now, like the people into four categories. You have like, first of all, the people who are still loyal to their political parties, unfortunately, and are still believing that it's, it's just an accident. They, the government didn't know anything about that. Then you have the people that are desperate. Like, they're going to go out of Lebanon the, the first second the, the airport opens. And then you have people who are not, like... They, they have lost faith in the revolution, actually, and they're just depressed. And then you have the people from the revolution, like, I don't know, they believe they, they want a new country. And these are these people, mostly, that, that they just want a revenge from, from everything that happens, not just the explosion, the, the whole 30 years of catastrophe. Um, people are very heartbroken, obviously, we all are, because... Um, what, what happened was, as I said, like we've been through so much, but this is on a whole new level. Like over 300,000 people have lost their homes, over 170 um, victims. And we're not calling them martyrs because they are not, because they died for no reason. They died because of the corruption, which um, is not something new. It's been going on for over 30 years now. And, um, and they are angry. Everyone is very angry. Because um, in a country like this shouldn't happen, like no accident like that is supposed to happen. Like imagine like, first of all, Lebanon is already like a very small country. And this is the third largest explosion in the world. I can sense that you are both inevitably and understandably upset, but that you're still proud of being Lebanese. Will and I are both American and this is nowhere near on the same scale, but there are times where I hate this country and those in charge of it. Um, both of you are still proud of your country, just not in its current condition. If you ask me what I want America to look like, I can tell you. What do you want Lebanon to look like? What do you hope the people out on the streets in this past revolution will achieve? I mean, the minimum would be to bring back the Lebanon of before the civil war, which was the, the heart of the Mediterranean Sea. You had all the Arab people and, and it was going pretty well. Now, we we just like we just want all the political leaders to leave, like leave the country to us, and we'll make it a better country. And that that is the main goal of the revolution. Honestly, Lebanese people are like the strongest people. They're they're generous. They're kind. And and Lebanon like is known for like its best like um, nightlife and like when a guest. Like when a guest comes here, like we welcome him in open arms, and and like for people with such kind hearts to go through so much, it, it's just unfair. And and I know because I just look at my grandmother, for example, and I see how heartbroken she is. I mean, a 45-year-old um, Lebanese right now has been through the civil war, has been through a pandemic, a global pandemic, has been through so much corruption, and now an explosion, and. Just to see, like, not even Lebanese, like, any person should not have to go through that. And I, yeah, I just, I hope, like, I wish for, like, happiness to come to their hearts. Because it, it's honestly very sad and it's unfair. And, yeah, I just want, like, and, like, now something that's good that happened is, like, Lebanon is being portrayed for what it is instead of, like, the, like, the figure that, People had on it like being a terrorist country or a poor country or but now it's like it's showing like like how kind the Lebanese people are and how how much they've been through and how much love they have to give despite everything they're still strong they're still hopeful they're still on the streets cleaning helping others even when their their own homes are damaged 
And it just shows how, how strong the Lebanese people are. And yeah, I just, I'm proud of like the new image that has been like that has surfaced. And I just hope, yeah, to get back the Lebanon that was. We urge you to support Simply Youth by following them on social media. They, like this podcast, are available on all major streaming platforms, and they release far more incisive episodes than we ever will. Thank you, Lilia, Mahmoud, and Hadi. We now return to Max Weiss on how he thinks the explosion will be perceived outside of Lebanon. As far as the perception of these events and the way this kind of tragedy gets described in the mainstream Western press, I think it's fair to say that your, your question is already hinting at the key point here. There remain deeply embedded and I would say offensively violent stereotypes about the Lebanese people, about the Middle East, about Arabs and Muslims that shade and color our description and not just our analysis of events. By all accounts, the explosion at the port of Beirut on August 4th was, call, was caused by bureaucratic ineptitude, possibly criminal activity seeking to avoid dealing in a practical and efficient manner with a real public health danger to the residents of Beirut. Immediately upon the event, however, one would find, and not only in, in the conspiracy theory riddled corners of the internet, one found reasonable people discussing whether this was an Israeli attack on the port of Beirut, whether this was an attempt on the part of Hezbollah or other players within the Lebanese political system to make some kind of a statement rather than recognizing that this was a completely unexpected, unprecedented tragedy for hundreds of thousands of people. And one cannot ignore the geographical location of the city of Beirut. Beirut is caught in a maelstrom of an ongoing and unending Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a broader Arab-Israeli conflict, a nearly 10-year-old war in neighboring Syria, regional tensions having to do with ongoing U.S. imperial ambitions vis-a-vis -vis the oil resources of the region, a strategic and ideological conflict with Iran, a related Iranian-Saudi proxy war that is going on throughout the country with specific resonance in Lebanon. None of these matters can be ignored. At the same time, they occlude the very basic human tragedy that took the lives of hundreds of Lebanese people and disrupted the lives of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So in that respect, this is far more a story about what I would call Orientalist stereotypes about the Middle East region, and even more specifically, a kind of enduring inability to see Lebanon as anything other than a space of primordial, that is innate, violent sectarian conflict. I am constantly amazed at the number of times I will see the name Beirut used as a metonym, as a kind of statement of the truth of unresolvable political and religious conflict. Even among right-thinking liberal people, the term Beirut in English means war. Let's talk about some of the underlying tensions in political and social systems in Lebanon. We've done an episode on Yemen, and as is the case in Yemen, there are numerous external actors capitalizing on power voids to promote their own interests. In Lebanon, one group in particular comes to mind, Hezbollah. Who are they and what role do they have in this country? Hezbollah, or the Party of God, is a best understood as both a national liberation movement that emerged in Lebanon in response to the Lebanese civil war broadly conceived, but more specifically, Israeli aggression 
and occupation of Lebanese territory in South Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley, and Beirut. At the same time, Hezbollah is also inspired by and coordinates with the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1978-79. So from its inception, and Hezbollah only announced itself to the world in 1985 in an open letter that is worth reading, I assign it to my students every year, um, Hezbollah declared that its goals were to um, repel the forces of external aggression, as they put it, most specifically the intervention of the Israelis in the Lebanese civil war, and also to defend the rights of the Shiite community in South Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley, and Beirut. So from its inception, it has these two faces to it. Its critics are more inclined to identify Hezbollah as a foreign implant, one that simply seeks to do the bidding of the Iranian regime. Some of its greatest proponents argue that that is ancillary to their commitments to national liberation. That is to say, the liberation of all Lebanese territory from foreign occupation and the transformation of the political system towards one that would be more just. And just here would be understood with a specifically Islamic interpretation in mind. The party was ever, the, the party has been a um, participant in the Lebanese political system since the Ta'if Accords in 1989. Hezbollah had 12 members represented in the 128-seat parliament after the parliamentary elections in 1992, and ever since then it has had parliamentary seats. In 2005, Hezbollah had two cabinet members installed in the Fuad Senora government, this being the first time that Hezbollah would hold cabinet positions. So for 15 years now, we're talking about a party that participates in the formal Lebanese political system. That does not mean, however, that Hezbollah acts like any other political party. Most often it is the critics of Hezbollah who remind us that the party is the only political party to the conflicts during the Lebanese civil war who have not officially given up their arms. This does not mean that other paramilitary organizations in Lebanon do not themselves also have substantial military hardware at their disposal. It simply means that Hezbollah has been unwilling to officially renounce their arms and the use of armed struggle against foreign aggression. And yet they also participate in the political system. So it is this kind of dual um, nature of Hezbollah's political activities at times in conflict with Israel, at times intervening in the Syrian civil war on the side of the Bashar al-Assad regime, that on one side, and on the other side, it's direct participation in Lebanese domestic affairs that leads to some, not only confusion about their larger aspirations, but also in terms of their loyalties. Before closing, I want to talk about corruption in Lebanon, what it refers to and what they mean by it. In late August, Prime Minister Hassan Diab resigned following a mass resignation from his cabinet. In a televised speech to the nation, he said that he reached the conclusion that corruption was bigger than the state. What does this mean? I don't think Hassan Diab came up with the idea that corruption is larger than the state. Talk to any number of Lebanese citizens over the past 25 years, and you will hear people refer to corruption as a scourge that prevents any kind of political transformation in the country. This indeed goes all the way back to the mid 20th century, you could argue. The consensus idea for many people is that the, the political game in Lebanon is, is basically rigged. There are elites who make decisions and the Lebanese people must somehow struggle to make ends meet. The nature of this Lebanese elite is what is most complicated in order to sort out um, the political and the economic mess that the country finds itself in. 
more often than not, one hears Lebanese citizens refer to the political class, as the source of the country's corruption problems. But the, the problem of, of corruption in Lebanon is extremely complicated given the multiple ways that the, this political elite are, are understood. Now, some would argue that this is a sectarian elite that dominates the political system in order to promote their own, whether elite or communal interests. This is no doubt part of the problem. Historically speaking, the political bosses, the za'ama in Arabic, who were either commercial, economic actors with some clout or political officials who may have behaved as warlords during the civil war, who may have turned into businessmen after the civil war, who are finding their uh, place in successive Lebanese governments. But another side of the comment that you cited from Hassan Diab has to do with the nature of the Lebanese state itself. Something you will more often than not hear people say if you ask, what would you like to see the state do for, say, garbage collection? What would you like to see the state do for internet provision? What would you like to see the state do for subsidies on basic goods? Most people will say, mafidaula. They'll say, there is no state. This is patently untrue. There is a political authority that behaves like a government, but does not carry out the tasks of a democratically elected government. Corruption, more often than not, in the post-Civil War period, I'm drawing on scholarship by friends and colleagues who have looked into this more deeply than I have done, has to do with the nature of political and financial networks that have effectively reconfigured a government bureaucracy into a kind of private or privatizing system of interlocking interests. So one could look, for example, at the sphere of waste management and track how it was that the privatization of the waste management sector after the Civil War, beginning in 1994, spearheaded by none other than the deceased assassinated Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri, as part of his vision of a neoliberal and uh, privatized form of government. It is networks like those who were in business with Rafiq al-Hariri and his Saudi Arabian-based companies that were committed to not only privatizing waste management, but also were indispensable in developing the downtown revitalization program known as Solidaire or the Central Beirut District that came together in such a way that appeared to be acting like a state but effectively were functioning as more private than public in public-private partnerships with a for-profit incentive that ultimately led to the state taking responsibilities for all the practical failures, also allowing for those political elites to constantly pass the buck and point the finger in blame to a different representative of that agency, a different government minister who may or may not be sacked as a consequence of that failure, so that a shuffling and reshuffling of the Lebanese elite sectarian political deck created an illusion that there was some kind of a reform or a correction when in reality, the terms of that public-private networked arrangement for, in this case that I keep mentioning, waste management, uh, there was no path, no obvious path for some kind of civic or citizen's redress. I'm actually extremely excited um and honor that we were able to speak with people on the ground in Lebanon. Uh, and earlier in this episode, those that have been listening will have heard that. But I'm interested in your thoughts about those uh, that would typically never speak or hear about Lebanon. Now, all of a sudden, we're hearing about 
explosions, about resignations, about mass protest, people that are learning about Lebanon for the first time, how do they adopt the mindset that you and the students we've just spoken with have that Lebanon has a rich economic, political, social, religious, and cultural history? How do they see it as something more than a far-off country capturing the news in this moment? Well, I'm really glad to hear that you're having some Lebanese folks on the, on the program because, again, I am sheltering in place here in New York yeah. and I'm not yeah. in Beirut. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think this is particular to Lebanon in the sense that um, it's important that we take seriously the voices, the experiences, and the aspirations of um, people who have been struggling for a very long time in Lebanon to create a more just, a more equitable, and ultimately a more representative system of government. Now, what has happened over the past couple of years is a radicalization of a really thriving sphere of um, grassroots movements, cultural activities, social life in Lebanon that is remarkable. I think anyone who hasn't been to Lebanon who visits finds that the array of activities that uh, one finds throughout Beirut and throughout the country at large to be really impressive, whether it's in terms of art or music or cinema or public celebrations and so on. I think the, the important thing to recognize is that there is a, a kind of um, interplay between the real dire economic situation that the Lebanese people find themselves in right now, owing to the ongoing and seemingly incessant um, self-aggrandizement of the political elite in this country, in that country, which has led to a ballooned public debt that is something like one and a half times the country's GDP to a currency crisis that is causing individuals, some friends of mine, to be unable to um, take out money from their bank accounts, the continued closure of the airport, making it difficult, if not impossible, for many people to travel, all of which has led to this kind of boiling point that kicked off the October 17th, 2019 revolution, as Lebanese participants in those events um, call it, which, as with many of the crises the country has been through over the past 20 years, was not expressly about reforming the sectarian political system. It was about economic matters. It was about taxation that was suddenly imposed on certain life activities, including the usage of WhatsApp, for example, that then brought people back to the fundamental problem of how to achieve real and lasting change in their national life, given the obstacles of the sectarian political system. And I guess as a closing note, in, in my 2010 book, in the prologue, I mention how I set out to write a dissertation on Lebanon without talking about sectarianism. And then I wound up writing a dissertation and then a book that was specifically engaged with the problem of sectarianism. So I would simply add at the moment that I sympathize with my Lebanese friends and uh, colleagues and all Lebanese citizens who would rather not have to continue to struggle with and against the challenges of a sectarian political order. But I also recognize that until this fundamental problem at the core of Lebanon's sectarian democracy is not revisited and possibly reconfigured, it's likely that it will continue to create problems for the country down the road. Faisal Kardash's new book, Roundabout of Death, is a personal testimony to the violence which battered Aleppo, Syria in 2012 following ISIS rule, and Max Weiss served as the translator. It comes out May 18th later this year. If you're interested in learning more about sectarianism in Lebanon and greater Syria, we'll direct you to the show notes where some of his older books are linked. Thank you so much for coming on. This was The General Desk with Max Weiss on the past, present, and future of Lebanon. Up next is The Junk Desk. Marcos Rios is our senior junk correspondent. He joins us from the campus of Northwestern University. Good evening, Marcos, and thank you for coming on. 
Thanks for having me here. I'm super excited. All right, Marcos, tell us about the Junk Desk. I've actually been really excited to be a part of the Junk Desk since it is honestly anything and everything that I find pretty interesting, which is kind of broad and not so clear for, you know, like a straight shooting desk like politics or finance. But the really cool advantage of the Junk Desk is it means it's going to be interesting, hopefully. I'm going to have passion in what I'm writing and hopefully people are going to like it. Awesome. Thank you. So so tell us about this piece that you just wrote about. What does voter turnout typically look like in America? Yeah, of course. So this past election, I served as a phone banker for a, a voter rights super PAC. And when I was doing it, I realized that there was a lot of reasons that people voted, whether it was to like support America, whether it was because it was their constitutional right, whether they had fought to vote, etc., but the reasons that people didn't vote were not ones I was really aware of. My parents had talked about, oh, some people just don't like the fact that their vote doesn't really mean something if they're from an area that like is known to lean one way or another. But as I began talking to people and asking them if they were going to vote, if they had a plan to vote, I found out that there was a lot of reasons. I wanted to explore that in my article. So can you tell us about the reasons why people don't vote, starting off with the most common ones or the ones we think about most often? So the most common reason is probably just not being registered. So even though anyone who's 18 and is a citizen and doesn't have like a felony should be able to vote, there's a lot of policies that make it more difficult for people to register. Now, a large majority of people who aren't registered are not registered because of apathy. They don't care about politics. They don't care about elections. But there's a significant chunk of people that are registered to vote, but aren't voting. So some are no transportation. They can't get off work. Election day is on a Tuesday. No one has a Tuesday free. But the most common reason, I guess, if you were to say one, is simply there's stuff that makes it hard to vote. What about the reasons people don't generally talk about, but which are still non-negligible? Uh, the Probably the most surprising statistic I found when I was researching for this was that there's about 1.3 million Americans um, out of a voting population of maybe 300 million. So like a third of a percent, which is significant, who aren't voting. And because they are, they are Jehovah's Witness. And so Jehovah's Witness is a religion that as part of its religious beliefs, does not believe in worldly affairs or engaging in worldly affairs, and that includes partisan politics. So in terms of voting in any type of national, local, state election, they're not going to do it. I had a friend who was running a school election, and she said she reached out to a student in her class asking her if she had voted yet, and uh, the Jehovah's Witness beliefs extend to that too. 1.3 million Americans not having a say just because they don't believe they want to. In your piece, you write about a really moving conversation you had while phone banking. Can you tell us about it? Phone banking was something I really wanted to do because I actually wasn't 18 at the time, so I couldn't vote. And so it was a way for me to be uh, actively involved in the electoral system, even though I didn't have the right to vote. Um, so when you phone bank, you call registered voters to see if they're voting or to see if they need any help voting. And so obviously you get a lot of people that are like, get me off this list. No, I don't want to talk to you. Um, but every once in a while, you do get someone who's searching who actually needs help. And so I called this man during the Senate runoffs in the state of Georgia, day of the election. I had some last minute time and I decided to uh, just go online and figure out, see if I could help. And so he told me that he wanted to vote. He had voted in the past and that he wanted to be able to go to vote, but he didn't have a ride. His mom had died due to COVID earlier that year, and he had no way to get to vote. So it was so crazy to me, the fact that there was this man, this man who had the right to vote, and he had no ability. He was effectively disenfranchised because it's just hard to vote. So there's organizations out there like Ride to Vote. They weren't working. There was Uber was trying to run a free voting, like free ride to vote. It was, he didn't have an iPhone. Lots of people don't have smartphones. And so all these obstacles, imagine you're not on the list. What happens then? So it just made me realize that 
just having the right to vote doesn't mean you're going to be able to vote. And we have to correct that. Do you have any last thoughts? Any last words? Honestly, I just want to emphasize the fact that if you have the right to vote and you're not bound by any religious beliefs, please use it. Please, like, in local elections and state elections and county elections, because every single time you vote, you're putting your voice into the process. Obviously, it's really difficult for one vote in the context of 160 million in this past election to make a significant difference. But there's some counties where it was decided by a couple hundred. People don't think it makes a difference, but it does. You can read Marcus's piece, Voter Burnout, Why People Don't Vote, under the junk desk at thefinchpodcast.com. Thank you, Marcos. This was the junk desk. Up next is the science and technology desk, or as I dubbed it, the stack desk. Cassandra He is our senior science and technology correspondent. She joins us from Athens, Georgia now. Cassandra, how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm doing great. How are you? Likewise. So your debut piece is about cybersecurity. What does cybersecurity look like in a normal year? So one of the interesting things about the research I was doing was that um, I noticed that like in a typical year before the pandemic even hit, um, one of the industries that suffered the most from uh, data breaches was the healthcare industry. Um, it was an average of about like $6.5 million a year, I think, um, according to an IBM study. So already before uh, before this pandemic, it was already pretty bad. Um, and as we see it's gotten, it's only gotten worse with the, uh, with the pandemic. And why is that? Yeah. So we see that like, as many people, you know, move online because of the shutdown and everything, um, uh, system security starts to become a really big issue. And, and um, especially with uh, COVID-19 and everything, um, hackers are starting to capitalize on the kind of like panic and hysteria that's been coming along with COVID-19 and using it um, to target people, basically. Um, we've seen like a huge like uh, uprising of phishing attacks that are basically hiding behind like um, these innocuous emails about, uh, you know, vaccine distribution or like vaccine registration, things like that. You wrote that, quote, hackers have begun targeting multiple aspects of vaccine distribution, end quote. So the, as far as vaccine distribution goes, um, there, there was like a pretty big scare um, earlier in December around that time, I think, because people, um, a lot of the people involved with distribu- um, distributing the vaccine, part of what we call like the cold chain, um, were under attack from a bunch of like uh, phishing, like a phishing scheme, I guess you would call it. I think biotechnology companies themselves have seen like have been targeted as well. I like I talked about this in the article. Um, Pfizer actually uh, uh, filed a report about um, how they they were actually they came under attack and some of their data um, regarding one of their vaccines got uh, what well, was accessed um, unlawfully, which is definitely uh, something to be worried about. You also wrote in the article that America is one of the most targeted countries. How will this year of pandemic cyber attacks impact the future of American security online? Yeah, definitely. The U.S. The U.S. Um, has been at the top of the leaderboard uh, for like the past couple of years now for the most um, for the most cybersecurity attacks, um, and that trend has continued this year. Unfortunately, um, I think we saw around. 1.7 million COVID-19 related attacks, like COVID-19 related attacks on its own. That's not counting like everything else. So, which is uh, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, in terms of like America moving forward and how cybersecurity is going to affect that, I think definitely if this has been a lesson to us about anything, I think, um, We've seen that cybersecurity is really important, especially like as we move to a more digital um, future, cybersecurity is starting to become really, really important. Um, and I think definitely, you know, a lot of um, a lot of research institutions don't really have like the most up to date um, software in terms of, you know, um, in terms of cybersecurity. And we 
we talked earlier about like how especially the healthcare industry is really um really lacking on that front i think um it's yeah we're, we're definitely going to be seeing a lot more um effort being put into cybersecurity um as we move forward you can read cassandra's piece a different kind of virus at the science and technology desk at thefinchpodcast.com thanks In this episode, we spoke about the competing and synonymous influence of religion and politics in a turbulent Lebanon, the reasons behind America's modern disenfranchisement, and the dark war happening in transcontinental binary behind your screen. This episode was made with the help of Marcos Rios, Cassandra He, William Feng, and myself, and features Max Weiss, Thilia Chaheen, Mahmoud Yamani, and Hadi Khalaf. You can find out more about what we do by reading the show notes and following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at The Finch Media. If you like our work, please feel free to leave a review and subscribe. This time next week, we'll be back with our culture, opinion, and after dark desks. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Goodbye and thank you from the Finch Media Group.